You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre from the Education Department here, and I'm delighted this evening to introduce Lloyd DeWitt, who is, of course, our curator of European art here. Um, and I'm very interested to see what he has to say. So Lloyd DeWitt, as I just said, is curator of European art here. He was associate curator of the John G. Johnson collection at the Philadelphia Museum of Art from 2003 to 2011, where he organized exhibitions on Jacob van Riesdale, Bosch, and Bruegel, William Kalf, David Teniers, and the master of the Morrison triptych, and Hans Memling. That's a sort of test of cultural pronunciation right there. He also served as advisor and catalogue author to the 2008-2009 exhibition Jan Levens, A Dutch Master Rediscovered at the National Gallery of Art, Washington, D.C. His current exhibition, Rembrandt in the Face of Jesus, which he's going to talk about this evening, was on display at the Musée du Louvre in Paris and at Philadelphia, and is it now at Detroit. So welcome, Lloyd. Jillian, and it's very wonderful to talk about this project in Toronto and uh, have memories here of uh, Paris in April with our banner on the uh, on the side. This is the project that um, was five years in the making to put a, to gather uh, began as a very modest proposal to try to gather together six or seven little sketches of Jesus made by Rembrandt, his studio, we weren't sure, and to think about this radical shift that Rembrandt made in the middle of his career towards an, a realistic Jesus. Realism is a very big part of his project, and uh, one that was um, that had emotion, that moved, that was human, and human for the first time in the history of Christian art. And to, to understand this, uh, I want to look at in the whole project, in the exhibition, uh, aim to look at the place of this sudden change in Rembrandt's career in the history of art. The, um, the change that he makes is something that is not fully understood by even his own pupils. It's not fully accepted. It's derided. It's uh, uh, criticized in his own day. And it's really not until the 20th century that people really take a, a strong look at, at what Rembrandt really did with this small set of sketches and the works that resulted from it. And that's what we're, what we're going to look at tonight. So this is our wonderful banner on the Louvre facade facing the Comédie Française. The project um, began in earnest in 2006, but for years scholars have been discussing how nice it would be to reunite what we always knew was out there, this, this batch of little sketches that Rembrandt made of Jesus um, in around 1648 to 1656 in the middle of his career, uh, and to look at Rembrandt, how Rembrandt imagined Jesus in his art, because he made a lot of religious art, and this was really his, his, his uh, artistic mission was to be a history painter, unlike so many artists in Holland in the, in, uh, in the 17th century. This set of Jesus sketches is the largest set of little oil sketches of a single person in his career, from, from different angles, 
with different expressions, and importantly, under different lighting conditions. <clears throat> and they're sketches, which means they're aimed at f showing or providing models for finished works of art. But as the largest set, they obviously took on or have some greater meaning in his work. In 1656, when Rembrandt sought bankruptcy protection from only one creditor, it turns out, the contents of his house were inventoried by the clerk of court, room by room, in detail. In the Achterkammer, or private room to the rear of his house, was, a room, was his whole art collection. And a lot of people call this room his bedroom, but if you visited the Rembrandt house, you know it's actually kind of a, a, a large, spacious room, more like a, what the Dutch call a zaal or a hall, but it is at the back of the house, and that means it's the private area of the house. And it's full of his most precious possessions. They're what drove him to bankruptcy. There, beside the Raphael, was a little painting called Head of Christ by Rembrandt, Christus Troni für Rembrandt. And two works away from the Raphael on the other side was another painting, also called Christus Troni für Rembrandt. And then, in the small studio, which is really the attic where the studio assistants worked, there were many props, many sculptures, casts, weapons, and exotica, and, and prints. In the fifth compartment was another Christus Throni, except for this time it's Christus Throni nad Leven, head of Christ after life. No trace of irony. How do you do Jesus after life? Well, that's not the issue, though. Even the court clerk knew what Rembrandt had done. He had posed a young man from life for Jesus. So these three must be among the eight that were made. Seven of them survive. They're all very similar in technique and different, in, and they range, and they're different from each other in pose and expression, and they form this set. The face of Jesus that Rembrandt develops in these first appears in the 1648 Supper de Maus painting in the Louvre, and that explains why we were so eager to work with the Musée du Louvre. None of them are signed and dated, and this actually has huge implications about attribution. The parameters that we have are 1648, when they first show up in, in the painting, and 1656, when they're mentioned in the inventory. Beyond that, we really don't know when work on this set began and ended. It seems to have started with a few sketches and grown into a larger set. And the position of two of them in his zaal, or in the Echterkammer, with his most precious works of art in this private family space, suggests that the set, the sketches, took on a new meaning or greater importance in his life. What's astonishing is these humble little sketches, which look so plain to us in the proposition that they put forward, the idea that you could model Jesus using a living figure, is astonishing when we realize that this is the first time in 1,400 years of Christian art that this had ever been done. It was against the rules. And it occurs at a very interesting time in Rembrandt's life, during a period of turmoil and, and reversal, in his life. Our idea of Rembrandt's life is a little bit colored and dramatized. We all 
know the chart, the, uh, the, the, the story of Rembrandt's life as it's told in, in the movie in which Charles Lawton uh, plays him, where with the introduction of the Night Watch, his art was too radical, he faced rejection and reversal, he's the misunderstood genius and, and lived a life of, 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 uh, of uh, really squalor after that and, 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 and finding no public success. Now that's not entirely the case. We now know that, while it's true that Saskia's death did have a huge impact on his career and life, his patrons were actually faithful. His problems were largely of his own making. The biggest problem was that he stopped making payments on his wonderful house, already shortly after his, he bought it. This is a distressingly familiar story these days. He was so in debt but yet he couldn't stop buying art and curiosities. He often competed at auction with the richest collectors in Amsterdam to buy the most expensive paintings. What really did him in was this wonderful prenup that Saskia had locked him into. It had social and moral consequences. She came from a wealthy noble family in Friesland and the wedding contract specified that her fortune, the money that she brought into the marriage, had to remain intact to be given to any children that they had together. And they did have a surviving child, Titus. Well, they burned through that money in no time. So that fortune was never there again. And this prevented him from marrying after that. And the two affairs that he had afterwards were both socially and morally disastrous for him. The first one, he behaved like a real cat, and the second one uh, with Hen um, Hendrik here led to social isolation. It's exactly in these years, in the late 40s and 50s, that Rembrandt develops this new model for Jesus. He finds a kind of new core and obsesses about refining expression and, uh, and realism in this search, in this quest. So we do have to see that there's a context for this, a, a, um, a context that which his own life is in turmoil. So there's the wonderful house, it's today's uh, Rembrandt House Museum. But to really understand what's so radical about doing a realistic Jesus from life, using a model that seems to have been uh, Jewish, uh, let's back, jump back to the history of art to see how you were supposed to paint Jesus. The whole practice of painting Jesus was fraught, since Jesus was both God and man. And twice in Christianity, whole civilizations erupted in iconoclasm and violence about this issue how to portray Jesus. Were you allowed to portray Jesus? And if so, how? What did he look like? And how do you avoid making an idolatrous image of Jesus? Moses' second commandment against making an image of God, a graven image, was taken to be not just the Father, but also Jesus, his human son. So after the Byzantine, the 8th century Byzantine iconoclasm in the Orthodox world, a teaching emerged that you were supposed to use Models that had been miraculously made without human hands. And copy these models faithfully without using your own imagination or creativity to intervene. If you used your own creativity, that was idolatry. And it explains why icons look so remarkably like each other. 
Two main models emerged as, as candidates for what Jesus looked like. The story of Veronica's veil is probably the most familiar in, in the Western European world. It's from the comes from the Catholic devotion of the Stations of the Cross. But ironically, the most influential in the Netherlands, in Northern Europe, as an artistic model, is not as well known to us. It was called the Mandelian, which is Greek for a napkin. And we have one of the, uh, an example of the Mandelian on the left. It's, uh, when the Latins invaded Constantinople in 1204 and plundered it, the, um, many of these models made their way into Western Europe and were imitated by artists. The ones that show up most often are based on this Mandelian. And the Mandelian, uh, the, the story of the Mandelian is that Abgar, King Abgar of Edessa heard, was, was ill and he had heard about this healer, Jesus. So he sent his scribe to, to try to persuade Jesus to come to Edessa to heal him. Jesus says he can't do that but then he took a, a cloth, a napkin, a mandillion, and pressed it to his face, gave that to the scribe, the scribe took it to King Abgar, it healed him, and also miraculously maintained the image of Jesus. And that cloth became, through many twists and turns, the great miracle working icon of the city of Constantinople. And, it, and many, there are many stories about what happened to it in, uh, in 1204, after the Latin invasion. It was thought to either be lost, or there were several candidates for, for it, several different examples of what people thought was the Mandelian uh, that made their way to different places in, in Northern Europe, and one of them is the one in, in Leon Cathedral. We know that it's actually a 13th century Serbian icon, but at the time, it's, it was so smoothly painted it may have looked like it was miraculously generated. Another one, in a diptych form, that is a two-leaf folding devotional work of art, uh, was known in France and closely followed by the artist Robert Campin, one of the great pioneers of Flemish realism, working in Ternay. And you see it on the, on the right, and it was the, it's in the Johnson Collection in Philadelphia. And you can see how closely it follows the Byzantine model. The, uh, with the long nose, the narrow mouth, the uh, projecting forehead, the shape of the eyebrows, the wispy beard. It's clear that Campin has taken up in Flanders the project of faithfully following this miraculous model. He's translated into Flemish, however. We see several instances in which um, the new realism really uh, asserts itself. For instance, in the, in the jewel, he creates he reproduces the beautiful illusion of the reflections and refractions within the, that, uh, um, within the jewel. And then, of course, Christ's hands are folded up over the frame to create a trompe l'oeil effect. And then in the face, we can read every little hair. The, the detail is really microscopic. So it, this is how we make the leap into Northern European art, the, how the image of Jesus finds its way the Byzantine model finds its way into the tradition that leads up to Rembrandt's own day. A second uh, important model is actually a story. It's also completely apocryphal, also from the 12th century. It's called the Lentulus Letter. 
and it's a, a kind of a forgery or a piece of creative writing that eventually became ex accepted as true by a lot of people. It was supposedly written by Lynchless, who uh, was guys Lynchless, the so-called governor of Judea, and it's supposed to be a description from life of Jesus. In fact, it's a description of an icon. But it lists all the features that you recognize, especially light brown hair. It mentions this twice. And it ends off by saying that, in short, he's the most beautiful of all mortals. So it's an idealized image of Jesus. It, it makes him to be godlike. And this is the thrust of all these images of Jesus that come out of the Orthodox world. They are perfect, they are uh, detached from humanity, they're powerful, they're unemotional, they're exactly the same, one to the next. It is all these qualities that Rembrandt challenges in his, in his uh, Jesus taken from life. Now there was a lot of discussion about, after the Reformation, a lot of instability and discussion about uh, trying to find a new kind of Jesus. And many artists, in deciding and wanting and just choosing, you know, should we make Jesus more godlike or more human, uh, chose to make him more godlike. So here, for instance, Cornelius Cornelius von Harlem, uh, working in the decades right before Rembrandt, um, makes a Jesus that uh, whose torso is based on the, the Belvedere torso, a famous piece of antique statuary in Rome that was. Uh, Apollo. Everyone accepted that this was Apollo. So he then takes this torso, makes it into a real person, adds his tiny little mannerist head, very uh, stylized head, and then that's his new kind of Jesus. The other features in the face are very familiar to us from the icons. But in all the discussions about you know which direction to go in, Rubens, Goltzius, all these famous artists that we know Rembrandt admired, all chose to make their Jesus, if they did make it any different than the tradition, to try to make him more godlike. And here's Jan Painas. This is an artist who worked down the street from Lustman, where Rembrandt studied in Amsterdam um, in, his, uh, in his youth. And this is a picture that we know Rembrandt saw because he copied the figure of the Magdalene into his own um, painting of the raising of Lazarus of a few years later as the Virgin Mary. Um, so this is a work of art that we know was an important model for, uh, for Rembrandt, and certainly these stylistic traits are really familiar to us. They look very much like uh, something that may have influenced Rembrandt. And yet the Jesus that Pinas chooses is very feminine. He has the long nose, the, the brown hair, all the features that you see in, in the, that are mentioned in, in uh, the Lentulus letter, and that show up in the tradition of icons. And then there's Rembrandt himself in his early work. Doesn't miss a beat. Rembrandt is actually fairly gradual and conservative in accepting a lot of, of changes in realism into his own art. Uh, the Caravaggesque uh, lighting, the, um, uh, the emphasis on emotion and on refining uh, expression are things that he knew already were his great strengths and uh, that he, things that he refined. But he maintains the models that he was taught because this, of course, was the true image of Jesus. And he wants to stay faithful to that true image of Jesus in his early work. This is a, a magnificent uh, painting in the Pushkin Museum in, in Moscow. Look at that wonderful fan-like array of gestures and faces as the bystanders uh, look at the wound of Christ. And this is something that fascinated Rembrandt. Rembrandt worked on speculation for the most part. 
He did do a series of paintings on the passion for the head of state in the Netherlands, but for the most part, his religious imagery is his own. And he is fascinated by images of Jesus after the resurrection. What do you do with this glorified body? How do you show that this is a person who's both God and man, but that's also been resurrected as a body that shows up in empty rooms with door closed doors, disappears. People like Thomas are told to touch Jesus and stick their, their finger in his wounds, but then the Magdalene is told not to touch him. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, Jesus is human, but more than human in these pictures. And what road does Rembrandt go down? He, he doesn't want to try to do anything pyrotechnic with the body of Jesus beyond a, a faint halo, but he, he tries to express the, the, all these qualities in the reaction of the bystanders, bystanders and disciples. He's obsessed with the relationships and what, how all that reads in people's faces. And, and in their gestures and in their positions. Here's a painting of 1644, a magnificent uh, uh, work of Christ uh, being called to judge a woman taken in adultery. I just love the size of the uh, hand of one of the officials. Uh, almost reminds you of Grunewald in the exaggerated uh, proportions. And there is Jesus standing up on the steps, uh, being told to offer, uh, to, to come up with his judgment of the situation. Uh, Rembrandt focuses on the relationship. Jesus looking at the woman and the quality of mercy that, that is expressed in the face of, of Jesus. What's of interest to me is the model. Here is Jesus. He's almost a head taller than everyone else. And he has these flowing locks of light brown hair. So here Rembrandt also then is following what a lot of other people are doing in, in trying to change the way that he paints Jesus. Another interesting thing that we wanted to show people is the, the, the shift from the early to the late to the mature Rembrandt, because there's this enormous change in his style. The early Rembrandt is bombastic. He loves these dramatic uh, uh, contrasts and silhouettes all taken from the art of Caravaggio, but with a, a theatrical use of gesture and intense emotion uh, that is all his own, and his own, uh, and his trademark, and something that he refined, something he knew he was good at. Now, in this early Ecce Homo, which is one of the few prints he actually uh, farmed out quite a bit of in, in the manner of Rubens, um, we've got the cast of thousands. This is the Cecil B. DeMille version of the Ecce Homo, because you've got, like, all of Jerusalem is down here. Stage sets, flags, the, you know, a dramatic trial. And what does he do for the, for the, uh, for the um, temple officials? He goes right back to Bosch, to these anti-Semitic caricatures of these ugly, exaggerated features on these temple officials um, to try to create the most amount of drama here. And, and so he's very, very faithful to tradition. His Jesus is very Apollo-like again, the largest, grandest, and most powerful figure in the work of art. Then we go, jump ahead to 1655, and the world has just changed. It's amazing. Everything has become still fixed. We are the people called to judge Jesus now. And the bystanders, these are all the people that we find back in his drawings of of people on the street, his Jewish neighbors. He had bought a, a grand house um, shortly after he married on the St. Antonis Breistrat, which had become 
the, the, neighbor, the favored neighborhood of the Sephardic Jewish refugees to Amsterdam. It wasn't a ghetto. In fact, this was the neighborhood in which the artists had lived all along. Lussman lived there. Paines lived down, there, down the street. All the great artists of Amsterdam lived on this street. Um, and it was only natural that the Sephardic uh, traders and merchants uh, would move there too because they had a common interest. They both sold luxury goods. Um, so there was this, 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 this sense of uh, these business interests that uh, coincided. But uh, it's amazing who we had living in the neighborhood. There's Spinoza as a, as a child, uh, Manasseh ben Israel, uh, Ephraim Bueno, the Pintos right next door. Um, he had an enormous amount of contact. And then on top of this, he lived there during the years when the Ashkenazi refugees started to come in from Eastern Europe. And these are the kind of people that we often find in the drawings because they're, they're, um, they're poor, they come with a lot of their worldly goods, um, and uh, he lavishes a kind of sympathy uh, in, in his drawings on them, in, in his prints on them, uh, on, on these beggar-like uh, people. But it's the face of Jesus that's so different here, and the figure too. He's no longer the tallest person in the, in the crowd. Is a gaunt face, one that's clearly based on these new models. If we compare the early and late raising of Lazarus, uh, again, you see this huge shift. Early raising of Lazarus, this great big print. It's a, meant to be a print that's more ambitious than most other people's prints. He's very proud of his skills. And this is Jesus the magician. You see the kind of lost profile here. He's a mysterious figure. We can't even see his face. He's almost pulling Jesus out of the grave uh, through magnetic power. Um, and everybody's expression here, sorry about the bleached out uh, image, but the, everyone's expression here is different. They all have their own reaction to this body that starts to move and, and, and come back to life. Um, so, Rembrandt is pulling out all the stops. Dramatic contrasts of light and shade, uh, dramatic staging, uh, exaggerated uh, features and proportions. Uh, these are all the things he does to be the most competitive artist in Amsterdam that he can be. Move to 1642, and we have something completely different. Now, the relationship, the, the vivification that, that you, uh, in, in a way, is through eye contact you sense that the life comes through sight. And, uh, and there, all the bombastic gesture, all the overworked and refined uh, line work is now gives way to a print that is you know, finished but unfinished at the same time. Um, this is the huge shift in, his, uh, in Rembrandt's uh, style. Also in the Supper at Emmaus. Emmaus was a Bible story that was Rembrandt's favorite. He didn't focus most often on the passion or on the infancy of Christ. And for the purposes of our exhibition, we excluded these because we wanted to focus on his innovation of this new face. But what's remarkable is that this, this obscure Bible story became the one that in prints, in uh, drawings, and in paintings was the one that he treated most often. This is the story after the crucifixion of Jesus when two disciples, very depressed, very confused, are leaving Jerusalem, their leader and teacher has just been uh, brutally executed by the Romans, and um, this wasn't supposed to happen. And uh, the stranger meets them uh, as they leave the city and talks to them and uh, explains to them, you know, actually why this was supposed to happen. And they're so engrossed in 
the conversation. They invite him to eat, to, to, to stop uh, by the road in Emmaus and, and, and share a meal with them. And at the moment he breaks the bread, very sacramental, the moment he breaks the bread, he disappears. And then they know at the same time. Just them. Just, only they know. But they know. And then they say, were our hearts not burning within us on the way, on the, as we spoke to us on the road? The, um, the uh, image, imagery of uh, Emmaus is also closely related to uh, his interest in Leonardo's uh, Last Supper. Here we have the, the, this very large sketch. Uh, it's actually a copy after one of the first print that was issued in Milan after the Last Supper. And he um, famously never traveled to Italy. The excuse he gave was, we're too busy, I have all this work, and why do I need to go to Italy? All the best art of Italy is available for sale here in Amsterdam, and I can just go and look at it in other people's collections or when it's being bought and sold. So I don't need to travel to Italy. He, this is the excuse he gave to the Secretary of State, so, um, uh, who had, of course, desperately wanted him to uh, uh, learn at the, at the feet of antique, you know, by drawing antique statues and, and the great art of the, of the Italian Renaissance. So he takes this print after Leonardo and turns it into a Rembrandt. He um, adds this canopy, clusters all these actions together, and, uh, and gives it an asymmetrical uh, composition, all in an effort to, to emphasize and to heighten the, the, the movement and expression in the work of art. And this is what we see in his late print of the Supper of Emmaus with the two disciples. They don't fall off their chairs anymore, and you don't have this dramatic light and shade. You have this very hieratic composition, um, and everything is about the reaction of the two disciples to, uh, to Jesus to, at, at this precise moment. This takes us to the great painting in 1648, which is the point of a lot of the uh, of oil sketches, not just of the face of Jesus, but also of the um, two, uh, two disciples. It is a work of art upon which Rembrandt lavished an unusual amount of care, and uh, it's one of his most successful mid-career works. It was under 10 coats of varnish when our project began, and my colleague at the Louvre, Blaise Ducos, very heroically undertook uh, to have it restored. This is no mean feat in France, where there's a whole league of people who do nothing but stop the restorations of Rembrandts in the Louvre. Apparently, so there was an unhappy with one. So uh, this is a very controversial thing to do, and it was the uh, restoration was taken, undertaken by Isabella van Legenhoek, and um, I was able to see the painting under a microscope before, it, uh, uh, before the restoration started, and you could tell that there was a lot more underneath the, all the yellow varnish than anyone uh, living had ever seen. And in fact, it was in great condition. So what we ended up with, and we never even bargained for, uh, was a kind of new Rembrandt, something that no one living had ever seen. This painting, which is almost entirely yellow, um, now has these wonderful tones of pink and salmon. There's a whole drama of feet under the table that tells the same story that Rembrandt shows above the table, there's this dog that we really never noticed before, not very kosher, um, and with this solid 
red dot for an eye, kind of psychotic, very, very unusual, a very Rembrandt-esque touch. And then the white tablecloth, which really is a kind of moment of purity, and all these still life details. We can clearly see that there are greens on the plate with the two sheep's heads being brought in by the server. The server, by the way, doesn't know. And that's the contrast what Rembrandt wants to make here. No flailing gestures, no people falling off their chairs. Instead, he contrasts the two disciples who do know at the time of the breaking of the bread, which, by the way, here is actual challah bread, braided, um, uh, braided bread for Sabbath, and um, the contrast between their reaction and the young man in the back who doesn't know. And he is not given this gift of knowledge. He does not experience this revelation. So this, I think, was one of the most astonishing parts of our whole project, was to see this, this painting, um, this critical painting, become uh, visible to us and become revealed to us um, through, through, the through this restoration. So the ethics of restoration demand that no original paint be touched, so they left four microns of varnish on this. So it's, it's very interesting to see these amazingly talented people in, uh, undertaking uh, restoration uh, in a way to avoid a lot of the difficulties of the past, but also to preserve something for the next uh, 300 years and, and, and to eternity. Rembrandt did, this is, I think that it's very valuable to contrast that wonderful painting to this early version, not well-known uh, version of the Supper of Emmaus in the Musée Jacques André. Uh, despite the fact that it lives just up the street from the Louvre, we had to move, we had to uh, practically move Mount Everest to get convince them to lend us to the, just one venue at the Louvre. It's uh, painted on paper stuck to wood, so it is very sensitive. And it's very small. Um, it's not tiny, but it is... Uh, a, a quite a small painting, and in it we see the chair falling over. We see Jesus in silhouette. Rembrandt loves all this band, bum, bum, sort of bombastic uh, uh, drama and contrast. Um, we have the server in the back also caught in silhouette, these wonderful contrasting uh, shapes in this painting. What's interesting is the face, though. This is the traditional iconic face, the shallow, long nose, the feminine features, all belong to the, the, long, the, the great tradition of how you paint Jesus according to the rules, according to the canon, to avoid idolatry. What a contrast to, uh, to the great uh, painting in the Louvre. Now what, how did he arrive at this face, this gaunt face, the dark-haired uh, young man whose features are so realistic, um, and, uh, uh, and such a contrast to the elegant uh, feminine model that he'd used during his earlier work. There are some people who speculate that he just made it up and that the faces are kind of uh, exercising in, in creativity. But there are these two black chalk drawings done with all the other black chalk drawings from about four, four, 1645 to 50. There's this whole cluster of black chalk drawings in his work and in a very distinctive style uh, belonging to those years. And then there are two of them. They are unlike any of the other black chalk drawings. He doesn't do very really portraits, uh, that many of, uh, of them are uh, portraits. And there is no young man in the drawings of Rembrandt or other drawings uh, by Rembrandt uh, or anyone who belongs to a circle that are anything like this. They show the same young man, but he's in street clothes now. He has exactly the same hair and the same uh, shape of nose and brow. Um, he's got his 
hands on his hat. This is significant because the, the, these hands show up in this position in a lot of the oil, the oil sketches. And these drawings have also never been exhibited in the context of the little oil sketches. So this is, by bringing them together, we, I think, have told the story that at the genesis of this all, that there was a modeling session, that there was, as everyone indicated, um, a model taken from life. We've got the court clerk saying, after life. One of the owners of the 100 Gilder print, which we'll look at in a minute, wrote on the bottom of it, this is a patron of Rembrandt's who certainly also knew, um, wrote on the bottom of his print, Aldus Malt Rembrandt Jesus Nat Leben. This is how Rembrandt draws Jesus after life. So it was an enormous amount of circumstantial, largely circumstantial evidence that all points in the same direction. This is significant because for some reason in the last five or six years, this has been contested. It's not very popular to have a young Jewish man posing for Rembrandt from life. And yet, Covert Flink, Rembrandt's student in 1661, was excoriated by the very anti in a very anti-Semitic poem by the otherwise renowned poet Jan Voss, the most influential poet in Amsterdam, wrote about a lot of paintings. In his first volume of collected poems, there's a poem about Joris de Weiser hiring Covert Flink to do a picture of Jesus. And he begged Rembrandt to make this Rembrandt speak, but it's just as well he didn't speak, as if this Jesus spoke, he would only curse Jesus. Why do you ask? Because this Jesus is a Jew. Awful poem, horrible, nasty thing. And, and it shows that, that attitudes were really changing in the later decades of the 17th century in Amsterdam. But it does also tell us that it was not unusual that one of Rembrandt's students did it. He also painted a Jewish Jesus, and that it was controversial. It was not accepted. By the way, that in the book, it occurs right after he compliments someone else, another collector, for commissioning a portrait of Jesus following the tradi traditional model of a Byzantine icon. So, you, you know, this is part of a poetic contrast, but nevertheless, um, it, 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 we, we can see where this fits in. Rembrandt also took many other sketches of, of uh, uh, Jewish people in his neighborhood. This is a little panel, oak panel sketch, just like the series of Jesus sketches. It's the same size, it's done in the same very fast technique, um, and through the wonderful science of tree ring dating, dendrochronology, we know that the panel for that, the tree that this was cut from, uh, another Rembrandt painting is has a panel that's cut from the same tree. It has a tree made in, in Rembrandt's uh, oeuvre. Tree ring dating tells us an awful lot. It tells us a lot, awful lot about the tree. It doesn't tell us anything about the painting, but knowing a lot about the tree, and specifically when panels show up in the same tree, is, uh, is very interesting and, and has forced us to change us, our minds a lot about a lot of things. But it does show us that this practice of painting these young people from life um, was very normal for Rembrandt right around this time period. And this brings us to that series of the Heads of Christ. There are seven surviving little sketches that all are very similar in technique, they're similar in size, the panels all date to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and sometimes a little earlier, um, suggesting this extended interest in uh, this new model of Jesus. Uh, the technique is very similar, very simple, a chalk glue ground, 
uh, earth pigments with sun touches of vermilion and ochre, um, a lot of wet and wet technique, um, and that and all in poses that can be transposed into finished works of art. There are attitudes that you can imagine being used in a, a finished uh, work from the New Testament. Uh, very pensive, very refined. The hands, the clothes, all are treated in a very summary fashion. What Rembrandt is obsessed with here is expression. And he reinforces that through the fall of light. And this is what he fusses over in these sketches. And there's a lot more work in those areas, in the eyes, in the mouth, than there are in, in, either, in the rest of the painting. There are also a lot of little traits, little markers that we were surprised by about exactly the distribution of vermilion. The use of a quill pen to scratch into the wet paint, creating two little parallel lines, um, and the use of scratching in general. This is one of the more interesting of the group because this was bought by uh, the Fog Museum when Seymour Slive was its director. He then published an article about this whole series, celebrating it in the 60s. This painting, by the way, has also been claimed to be a forgery by a famous and quite scurrilous Hollywood California painter named John Decker. There's a whole story about how he forged this painting and gulled and fooled the entire art world, including the grand poobahs at the Fog and Harvard Art Museum, and sold them a fake. <laughs> the panel on which this is painted also has a tree made in Rembrandt's work. Picture, if you would, well, the coincidence of this. He claims to have ripped the panel, out, the wood out of a, the bottom of a bureau he found in an antique shop while he was driving around Hollywood drunk with his friends. It so happened to be from the same tree as another Rembrandt, but never, the, never you mind. But it does raise a question. I, mean, I am curious if, if he did try to do any restorative touches, because his friends very specifically said that they saw him putting paint on this painting. So I'm thinking the beard, but we'll never know. Um, Wonderful story, wonderful story. I'm still in conversation with these people who are true believers in the forgery story, and uh, I, I feel sometimes I'm teasing them. But The Detroit Institute of Arts has one of these uh, small uh, panels as well. Uh, an art historian named Villain Valentiner was a director at Detroit, and he was also direct, working in Los Angeles and uh, in, also in Philadelphia. Uh, and where these panels have ended up, and also worked for, um, so that there's, there's, there was an excitement around the, the, this group of works, uh, really stimulated by that single art historian. Philadelphia's, uh, the, pan, the panel that really started all this, uh, is a little different, and what happened here, when I arrived in Philadelphia, this painting was in storage. <clears throat> now, that had more to do with this very ugly modern frame than, um, than the, the quality of the painting. But there still, because there were doubts about it, uh, it was consigned to storage. And there were doubts because it was made in a funny way. It's made of one piece of wood laid into another piece, a larger piece of wood, which is not, itself not very thick. And you can't see this from the back. So you can see the fine line now where the two panels come together. And that inside panel is roughly the same size as all the other little heads of Christ in this group. So this painting was expanded into a larger work of art. And we know from an old photo, which you see in the center here, that in fact at one point it was even larger, but then the dealer Sadelmeyer seems to have cut it down, thinking that the outside piece of wood was a much later addition. 
Now we know that it was a 17th century piece of wood and likely the expansion was done in Rembrandt's workshop. Ouch. Oh well, what can you do? Uh, he had no idea, he had no idea. Uh, we asked the guy who does the tree ring dating, Peter Klein of, of the um, Holtz Uni in, in Hamburg, to do dendrochronological readings of this panel. And of course he said, well, I'm not going to obviously pop out the inside piece of wood. I said, no, don't do that. Um, he used an x-ray to date the inside piece of wood because it's a one-to-one -one ratio and you can measure it. It's the spaces between the rings that you're counting. And then the outside piece of wood, he had end grain, so he could do that. Inside piece of wood, 1630, 1620s, 1630s, possible felling date. Outside piece of wood, 1611, so it's actually older. Well, this really opened things up for us. Instead of being a 19th century forgery, the whole construction was actually of a type we knew well. Rubens, for instance, loved expanding his works of art, and anyone who loved Rubens and was, admired him, and he was the art god you know, in Rembrandt's day, uh, would imitate him too. And a lot of people were doing these uh, uh, works of art that where they stuck extra bits of wood around them. The, the painus that we looked at at the beginning is, is one of these. Um, so it was not an unusual practice. Herod Dow, Rembrandt's student, also takes little copper panels and lays them into to panel, uh, to, uh, to these oak panels to make them into finished compositions. This was very helpful to us in one way because then we knew that the whole thing was a, 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 an ancient construction. That meant that this painting was this paint, this painting, sold at auction in 1772 and very obligingly sketched by my man, Gabriel Santo Bena, manic draftsman who would go to auction sales in Paris and would sit there and sketch all the pictures, not quite all of them, but all the important ones, into the margins of his own copies of the auction catalogs. What a gold mine. Uh, so now the, the dimensions that Sadelmeyer gave matched the ones that the Van Loo sale. And as did the description, and as did the arched top, which you can just barely see. So we then now had a viable candidate, something that was a very interesting object, and, and, and we called up our colleagues in Detroit and Paris to see about a, a project. Uh, what's also interesting, and something we haven't been able to confirm, uh, the Van Loo's may or may not be the descendants of uh, Magdalena Van Loo, who was Titus's wife. They didn't have any uh, uh, children, and, and he died even before his father did, but all her worldly goods did end up with her family. Uh, so it's, it, there's this intriguing idea that, that the Philadelphia panel that I worked on uh, somehow stayed in Rembrandt's family for many generations, but alas, we weren't able to nail that down. Here's how much Sadelmeyer took off. So we, we lost quite a bit, but it's interesting that he decided to turn it from a, an asymmetrical composition into a por more portrait-like and more saleable format. This was the outlier of the group. We really were very suspicious of this one because the pose was so different than the others. But when we got our, uh, the microscope up to it, we saw all those markers, the little touches of vermilion in the corners of the eyes, the ways in which the brush strokes and the face were long and drawn out compared to other works by Rembrandt of other expressive subjects. This is a kind of paint handling that distinguishes Rembrandt from his followers. Rembrandt does not imitate smooth skin. He expresses it through modifying his brushstroke. And that creates a kind of a set, a suggestion of smoothness without really trying to copy it from nature. 
This is Rembrandt's real genius, and that's what really sets him apart. That is a, a kind of work that we see in all seven of the sketches, where we can see it. The, the one in, in the um, fog is so terribly abraded that we um, really have very little left to go on in the space. And what you're seeing essentially is the ground and dead coloring, this first phase of blocking in the, the composition. Um, and just the little bits of lead white hanging on for dear life. What we noticed in this series, in our little version of the Rembrandt Research Project on these heads of Jesus, was what separated them one from the other, what really made them look different from the, one from the other, was condition. Because the, all of these had been loved by whoever owned them. And love meant restoration, and restoration standards have, have really swung and, and have been very dramatically different from one generation to the next. Uh, but the more often something is restored in, in centuries past, uh, the more you lose. I think it's really today's uh, uh, ethics that are so rigid, really, are a, a strong reaction to um, the excessive amounts of cleaning that uh, happened in the past. But um, that's really what, what separates a lot of these paintings. Here, for instance, in the Little Valuables Museum uh, panel, most of the background has been entirely replaced. The painting was first in a rectangle format, it was changed into an oval, and then they added pieces of wood around the edges to turn it back into a rectangle. So it's had quite a history. There's also an engraving from 1699 which shows it, labeled as uh, uh, Xenophon. Because these things are little sketches, they're kind of anonymous genre sketches in a way. They don't have any attributes. How do you know it's Jesus? Well, we know it's Jesus. He's got long hair and a beard and, and a, well, but the point is, how did they know it was Jesus? These are generic types. They're a new kind of work of art that Rembrandt and his friend Jan Liebens developed in the early 17th century. That is, things that look like artists' models, things that would not normally be bought and sold. In fact, they'd be kept secret in, in artists' uh, uh, um, ateliers as, as kind of... Uh, uh, tools of the trade, but also uh, secret weapons, you know, the, the greatest, the most virtuous pieces of art uh, artists would make would be these little model sketches, the things that they would use to train their students. But they had to be multi-purpose, so they had, couldn't be specific enough. And that quality of those, what are called heads or tronies, this whole new category of art, really does also apply to these Jesus sketches. They too, they, they're meant to be examples and models of expression and light and dark, uh, and, uh, and they in fact were copied by the students uh, in uh, at least two instances. Um, and, uh, and, they, and, it, and that sense of ambiguity is, is very much a part of what they're all about. This one was not, was hidden from sight until 1956. It was very I was very proud, I found this using Google Earth in the, in the, uh, the phone book of a, a not-to-be-named European country. And it was too res also restored, so we were very, very happy because for a brief shining moment we had all seven together. And then we ran into a problem. But nevertheless, for one brief shining moment we had all seven, we had loan agreements for all seven works. And this has the most Rembrandtesque uh, work in the hand, so this very, these broad strokes that we recognize as being his late style. So there is a suggestion that some of the, the works belong to the, uh, this wonderful loose manner of his late style. But again, this panel had all those markers, some very interesting and experimental work in the eyes and the pupils, but again, touches of vermilion, long strokes, the pen work in the hair. 
The hair in all of these little Rembrandt sketches is black. There is no brown in it. So when he's working from life, he's making a very specific statement about what he's seeing. When he translates this into his final works of art, sometimes a bit of brown comes in. But these sketches do not indicate that he is following the tradition of the Byzantine icon or the Lentulus letter. This was the stinker. Um, we ran into trouble here uh, with the Houtsticker estate. Um, this museum, the British Museum, was very, had some very unfortunate problem. They owned one half of a painting, the other half had been restituted by the Dutch state. Very uh, good thing to uh, the uh, Houtsticker estate. Uh, they'd been mercilessly robbed of their great uh, dealer's treasury uh, by Hermann Goering and, and the Nazis, and still a thousand paintings are missing today. Uh, but the Dutch state had also earlier kind of more or less permanently given their half to the Museum Bradius and paid to have this great Jan Steen painting brought back together. Well, while this is being decided, there's a loan moratorium that apparently couldn't be broken for love or money. So um, uh, fortunately, this is the only one of the seven that had a, a, a studio copy. So it, when, on the wall in Detroit, you can see the full range of expressions of the seven, but we didn't, in fact, manage to bring all seven together. The most beautiful of the set by, and the most well-preserved is the one in Berlin. And this is the one that's accepted by the Rembrandt Research Project, which has been very, um, not very complimentary of all the, the, the Little Jesus sketches. In fact, they never got that far in their whole survey of Rembrandt's work. Um, so that there's a bit of backtracking going on, apparently, as we speak. Um, but this one, at least, was, has been accepted and exhibited by Ernst von der Wetering as a, as a Rembrandt. Well, we, of course, point out that things that no one can tell are invisible and using techniques like infrared and x-ray are common between all seven panels. Uh, and that the main reason they look different is because of condition. And you know we know that there were three in Rembrandt's house in 1756, and that people describe the project as showing a young man from life. So that um, I think, we hope, what we've done will, will encourage people to look for themselves and, and to think about how objects come to us and what happens to them in the intervening years. And, and, that, and that, that has to be part of our judgment about what we see. Rembrandt does this late series of apostles in 1661. It was probably a commission. And here we have actually the first large-scale image of Jesus that uses that new invention in a painting. Um, the little sketches are not finished works of art, but this one was. This one was, and, and uh, this, this whole group was brought together in an exhibition a few years ago. Um, again, this was a very controversial thing to do, but Rembrandt stays faithful to his innovation, to this, 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 this very different model and type of Jesus, this realistic model in his art, and uh, through, through the end of his career, and uh, in spite of the criticisms that were offered. I mean, this is the very year that Jan Voss criticizes Colbert Flink for doing a, a, Jews, a Jewish Jesus. Um, uh, this is Rembrandt's own pupil again, uh, following his example. Um, so while Rembrandt stays faithful to his, his, uh, his model, uh, his own students even consistently don't follow in that vein. Uh, Student Samuel van Hoogstraten wrote his own book of instructions for young artists, the Hoogeschooler to Schilderkunst. And in it, 
he says, and when you paint Jesus, use the lentulous letter. And he prints the whole thing out. And at the end of it, he says, even if it's not true, sei et war verdicht. You still have to use it. It's the best example we have. And in his own painting of the, of the Doubting Thomas, he uses a iconic Byzantine-style, feminine, long-nosed um, image of Jesus in 1649, the year after Rembrandt uh, debuted his, uh, his separate Emmaus. So there, even within Rembrandt's own studio and amongst his own followers, there was no consensus that this was the step to take. But for Rembrandt, his artistic project was very consistent with thinking this way. Why would you use a Jewish model for Jesus? Um, because you need to test your source tradition against nature and work, and you have to work from life. Rembrandt was the artist that was, was uh, mocked by Arnold Haubrock, and it was Hochstraten's pupil, Hochstraten Rembrandt's pupil, so people that knew something about Rembrandt. He was criticized, and also by other critics, for showing his female nudes with the garter marks in their legs. You know, too much reels, dogs pooping, uh, all this indecorous detail. But he was committed to and believed in, he had faith in what he saw with his own eyes. And that is why, and because it was correct, it was, it was, it was going back to the source and defying tradition. So he goes back on his own work and chooses a model that is more ethnographically correct by choosing his neighbors around him as models. Again, this is not documented. We don't know who that young man is. We know that he's definitely not Dutch, and that other people said that Rembrandt used a model from life, and that Hobart Flink did paint a Jewish Jesus. All the evidence falls one way. But nevertheless, we're still, uh, we still have not yet identified who this is. And the point to Rembrandt is not that he has to be Jewish, or that this is interesting of, it, of itself, but that it makes his painting more true, more true to life, that it was more accurate for the viewer. And, uh, and more in and, and, and that way um, was a way of making his work um, one step more, real, uh, more realistic than anything done by a competitor. And he certainly had competitors. All his students in, in Amsterdam were uh, more successful than he was in gaining commissions from the city and from the, from the head of state uh, for large-scale decorations. He did struggle in comp uh, to compete against them. There is a missing eighth panel. It is, uh, there are two paintings that are almost identical, one done in Rembrandt style from the 60s, or at least late 50s, and one done in this style from the 40s. They're larger than the little heads of Christ, so they seem to be finished works of art, not, they're clearly done using the method that he taught, uh, but not by his own hand. Um, so they seem to represent a missing eighth panel. So there seem, do seem to have been eight original works of art belonging to this little group. So please look in your attics and see what it's handing out. It's something that looks a little like this, and uh, we might want to <laughs> talk to you. Here is the copy of the Brady's Museum painting. Um, in this, it's quite faithful. It's done in Rembrandt style of the 40s, which meant that that's likely when the person was taught or was present working in Rembrandt's studio. Um, it doesn't understand fully all the details of the original. And it also creates smooth, the artist here creates smooth skin by blending the paint on the surface. 
which seems logical, but is at odds with the expressive character of Rembrandt's own brushwork. Fortunately, it was in a gilded frame, so it, and on the wall it stands out as being, you know, this one doesn't belong entirely. So. The other figures in that separate Emmaus also are represented by these little oil sketches, not by Rembrandt's own hand, but they show the guys in different poses. Now, there's an argument that Rembrandt told his pupils to take figures out of his paintings and make them a little bit different and bring them back to life. To me, that's no different than sketching from life from the model in a different session, from a different angle. So there's one of the one pilgrim and then there's one of the other pilgrim. So there were, this was a project. This was a project to find this, to, to not just to find a new Jesus, but to, to, uh, to, to, to refine the expression in the fall of light in the other figures as well. The ones whose expressions, after all, told the story. Rembrandt's innovation of a Jew Jewish Jesus was not widely followed at the time, but there is this one little panel which clearly is not by Rembrandt, it's not by any of his pupils, because the method of, of making the panel is different, it's a little smaller as well, um, but it's clearly done in Amsterdam at this exact moment. So it did, he did inspire, and there was someone else, another painter, who knew what Rembrandt was doing and also imitated it for themselves. This takes us to the other great work that Rem, in which Rembrandt first used that new model of Jesus, the 100 Gilder print. It's a magnificent work of art. We're very lucky here in the collection of the AGO to have a, a 100 Gilder print on parchment. This is almost impossible to do, but Rembrandt wanted to experiment. He wanted to beat everybody. Durer, Lucas van Leyden. He wanted to be the greatest printmaker there ever was. Probably succeeded. This print has everything in it. It's got dry point, etching, engraving, and many of the versions have the background wiped in different ways. This is a great Havemeyer impression, um, but a lot of the versions of the 100 Gilder print have the area behind Jesus uh, not entirely wiped clean. You know, in etching, all the ink is left in the grooves, and you're supposed to polish and wipe the surface clean, but Rembrandt likes to wait, think of ways in which printmaking and painting can come together and to, to share the, the, the vocabulary. And quite a few of the 100 Gilder prints have different wiping in the background, so they're more like monotypes. But the print, the print itself is physically large. It is a no, very elaborate print. It's partly unfinished. You have a wonderful play of finish and, and ranges in finish. The, um, it, it, it has two parts of Matthew 18, Jesus healing the sick and uh, telling the, the mothers who bring their children to be blessed by him uh, to, to come hither and, 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 scor and scolding his disciples for sending them away. And then they're, they're invariably the skeptical uh, temple officials uh, off to the side. Um, uh, in the center composition, you recognize Raphael. You know, this is the school of Athens. But we don't have Plato and Aristotle. We just have Jesus. He's pointing up and pointing down at the same time. Um, this is the type of ambition Rembrandt's showing in this print. Um, and uh, he prints some of the versions on Japanese paper. You forget, this was this brief window when the Dutch were trading with the Japanese. And Japanese paper was available in Amsterdam, and it's being used not by everyone, but by the true experimenters, Rembrandt and his friend Jan Lievens. 
So they want to expand what printmaking can do. So it's not an, an unusual thing to find a print on uh, something so extraordinary as, as a version on parchment. Uh, Rembrandt also did this uh, paint, this small print. Uh, its subject is not really clear. It's Rembrandt preaching to his followers, and again, you have this wonderful range of reactions, this relationship between Jesus and his followers. Here, see, this face seems to be based on the Philadelphia painting, but there is no one-to-one -one correspondence, and this is always the case with Rembrandt. He told his students not to copy exactly, this is what they say, and he didn't do this in his own work either, and that's why you always find these slight shifts from model to finished product. Um, the, uh, and he didn't copy himself. Again, exploring all these the, the different characters, the exotic dress, all these different responses, people sleeping. You know, I love the boy in the foreground writing on the ground as if he's hearing and, and, and writing at the same time. This is a commission print. Uh, the plate was first owned by Rembrandt's patron, Nicolas de la Tombe. There's no tomb in it. This is the, it's named after the collector. It's a from 1652. Gorgeous sketches, drawings made for the 100 Yielder print, uh, mixed in with figures taken from the beggars on the street here, right in the same drawing. Wonderful moon from Warsaw. And, and one thing we also wanted to do in our exhibition, we included works of art, drawings and prints, but especially drawings, sometimes by Rembrandt, sometimes by his pupils, of works of art that we knew Rembrandt did that were remarkable but that have disappeared. He was famous for doing a picture of Rembrandt, sorry, of Jesus in the house of Mary and Martha that has not survived, but Arnold Haubrachen describes it, this famous biographer writing in 1718, this man who was uh, trained by Hofstraten, the painter who was trained by Hofstraten, who was Rembrandt's pupil, so a kind of grandchild of the Rembrandt studio. In other words, he knew what he was talking about. He describes a, a, a painting of, of how Christ in the house of Mary and Martha, and then we have these drawings. What's in the story, and this is before Jesus, right before Jesus uh, goes to trial and, and is crucified, he visits uh, Bethany, uh, the house of Mary and Martha, um, his, his followers, and uh, Martha is upset. Uh, she's making dinner, and Mary uh, is not helping. And uh, she tells Jesus to correct the situation, and Jesus, uh, to her great surprise, says, no, she's chosen the better way. She's listening to my words while I'm still alive. That is what you should do. And look what Rembrandt does. And we were very surprised by this when we looked at this drawing, because I thought at first, oh, that, that blots, that's water damage. It's not. That is ink into wet, on wet paper. He literally makes Martha a smudge. She's attached to the heart. She's a cipher. This is an extremely expressive way of using drawing. Here, in the, in the in a wonderful drawing of the Noli Me Tangere, this episode right after the resurrection, when, when Mary Magdalene runs, this woman who loved Jesus, uh, runs to the tomb with her jar of ointment, uh, which is mentioned earlier on in the Gospels, uh, uh, meets this gardener and asks him, where's the body, where did they take him? And then he says something and she realizes it's him. Uh, what does Rembrandt do? He shows her dropping the ointment jar and the outstretched arm, that's all you see. It's a very faint drawing, but it's amazing. You know, watching Rembrandt innovate, watching him refine, he focuses so much on single little details. 
when he was teaching, um, he taught a student, he told the students not to copy him. And in this great work, this, this in, in Copenhagen, we have a painting of great quality. It is a separate Emmaus. It is probably done in the same year as the Louvre's painting. It is completely different. It tells the story and emphasizes very different things in very different ways. Now a curtain is being drawn aside, as if ignorance was being swept away and, we, and a revelation was happening. This is a trompe l'oeil painting. It fools the eye. It looks like it's a picture in a frame with a curtain in front of it, a very common type of uh, way of showing pictures in 17th century Holland. Uh, but it's all the painter's art. It's fake. But it expresses revelation. And then not only does it express revelation, we have this little candle beside, so behind the disciple's head. It's literally a light bulb going off behind his head. And the face of Jesus, very much in keeping with the, uh, with the models that we've seen. And it is laboriously done. It is done with great faithfulness to Rembrandt's style. It is not by Rembrandt. It, this is how Rembrandt taught. One thing that emerged in our show was, was the still latent hostility about Rembrandt's teaching. And even in a show a couple of years ago about Rembrandt, not Rembrandt, people were obsessed with Rembrandt's own hand, as if his teaching wasn't a major part of his career. And, um, and part of his expressive and artistic mission. And that we can learn about Rembrandt and what he wanted to get out of a subject by what his students do under his notes. Because certain works are very elaborately done. They are clearly workshop productions. They're done with great discipline. They adhere to his style. These are not done by copyists who are trying to imitate and produce fake Rembrandts at the time. There are many hands at work. Uh, there are things that you can only know if you were if you're an insider about how this work was made and how to make it. And Rembrandt keeps innovating. Rembrandt innovates his whole life long. Here is this astonishing. It's a little engraving. This is the in Haubrachen's three-volume Lives of the Artists. Um, Arnold Haubrachen, our biographer, again talks about the missing paintings. Talks a lot about Rembrandt and his life and his style. And he illustrates this three-volume set with portraits of the artists. And there is only one single painting illustrated in the entire three-volume set. It is this late Supper de Maus by Rembrandt. And he talks about it. He found it so remarkable that of all the paintings produced in the entire Dutch Golden Age, this is the one that Arnold Haubrock had picked out to illustrate. Now, he's a bit of a proto-humanist, so the, realism, the kind of graphic realism of the scene uh, was appealing to him. But in copying this lost, now lost Rembrandt, uh, he at least t shows us that Rembrandt uh, has yet another version of the uh, Separate Emmaus in his mind, because he shows the moment after Christ disappears, and the disciples are staring at an empty chair. And that is utterly remarkable, unprecedented in the history of art, had never been done before. It's quite shocking. It's, it's, and it's still quite surprising to, to think about that an artist would, would be able to show a presence through this absence. It's like the Buddha's footprints in early Buddhist art. And, uh, anyone who knew the story would have known, yes, indeed, this was the next moment. There are also other etchings. There's Christ appearing to his apostles. And if you count them up, they're, you know, the number's right. Um, I'm wondering, this is a wonderful etching in which there's so little work and that expresses so much. 
It is a blaze of light, and that is sort of what Rembrandt has made Jesus into um, in this etching. It seems to me to be the moment after the Supper of Emmaus. The two disciples, Jesus disappears in front of them. They run back to Jerusalem to tell everyone else. And in that room with the doors closed, Jesus appears to them all. And I wonder if that, this isn't it, because Rembrandt did more etchings, drawings, and paintings of the story of Emmaus than of any other biblical story. So in keeping with that, that sense of obsession and interest, I, I know I've extended a few of his works to see if, if the, test of, the Emmaus test doesn't work in helping us to identify some of his more ambiguous works of art. He also continues to paint and draw his Jewish neighbors. This is absolutely breathtaking, riveting late portrait of a young Jewish man in the Kimball. Um, like, that expression is very hard to say that this is a commissioned portrait and that this was someone who, that Rembrandt didn't relate to, as some people claim. Um, it's an astonishing. There's really nothing like it in Rembrandt's late work. Um, so that, this also continues. And there are a number of other uh, ones as well. I was so happy that, that, that the Kimball agreed to this one. One other pupil did do a Jewish Jesus. Um, this is Johann Ulrich Meyer. I think that Ma Nicholas Maas may also have done one, but it's not as clear as, as, as Meyer. But for the rest of them, there is no legacy of Rembrandt's Jewish Jesus. Uh, there's the criticism, there's the retreat um, and uh, amongst his pupils, and uh, kind of a, a, a cloud settles over this innovation, and it really isn't discussed and understood until in the 19th century, you have art historians who pick up on uh, the Jewish subjects, and uh, and you know that led to a kind of a sense of overinterpretation of uh, of Rembrandt's work, but nevertheless that you know revive an interest in this in this uh, relationship with his neighbors after so many centuries. This uh, work at the Met is part of that series of the apostles. It's funny that you would have two Jesus pictures in it. But it's clearly part of that set. It has very distinct features in how the canvas is made and, and, and uh, laid out uh, that all of that, that group of paint pictures share in common, including the Hyde picture that we, we looked at. It is also entirely by workshop hands. It is not by Rembrandt. It is one of the few late works in which we can actually tell which of the students is doing the work, because that is Art de Gelder's signature way of scribbling, scratching into wet paint. So it seems here he has chosen another young Jewish man, a different model. He's faithful to his uh, innovation uh, in, in, in completing this series. It's, it's, it's kind of astonishing. It's hard to figure out who this is. It's even some people propose that it can't be Jesus, because why is he traveling? He's got a cloak, a staff, a kind of funny clasp, and then this cloth over his head that even looks a bit like a prayer shawl. Um, what's the meaning of all this? Is this St. James, St. James the Pilgrim? I propose maybe this is Emmaus again. Remember, Jesus is not known by the two disciples. They both depart Jerusalem, leaving the city gates here. Is maybe this that moment? Um, this is my very speculative suggestion here, but I think we have to think about this obsession with uh, with um, Jesus, with Emmaus, and the love of ambiguity that, that is so much a, big, a part of Rembrandt's work. I'd just like to leave off with the, uh, the great painting from the Hyde. So 
So, so that was our exhibition, looking at Rembrandt's innovation from the beginning of his career to the end to see the love of expression. But to follow that series, that group of works, this very unusual node in which so many things come together. Rembrandt's innovation as a history painter, his relationship with the Jewish community, his life, you know, Hendrikje's, uh, Hirtje is suing him and he's got, has her committed to an asylum with the help of his, her, her own brother and awful things. And then Hendrikje comes in and they can't marry. She's hauled before the church for living with him like a whore and his finances are going down the toilet. He's going bankrupt. He loses his house, his collection. Uh, all of this happening while he's doing this little set of Jesus sketches that becomes such a big part and a very big commitment in his work. Um, you know, and there are more of these things, the changes in his style, all this, the, the, this, this, uh, all, all of these um, different vectors in his life, all coming together in this wonderful little, and very humble series. Now, the series is like the innovation. You know, it's the first really truly human Jesus in the history of Christian art because he has emotions, because he does move. He, he defies all the parts of the canon, all the rules in the canon. Um, we're all doing this at, this at the same moment his life is falling apart. He's looking for this core, finding this anchor in his own life. And we know from his inventory that these, these, these works did take a special uh, place in his life. So a complicated person, and, some, and, and, and this is what they're like. Uh, and I think uh, that was, I think, the great revelation, at least to me, of this, of this project. Thank you so much. Any questions? I can ask you a quick question, Lloyd. What I, I'm, that was intriguing, and really, I'm, I'm just reminds me how much I really enjoy the sort of art historical sleuthing. Um, what made you so interested in this subject? What led you to this? Um, well, I had always known that uh, Rembrandt um, about this series, and I loved Slive's article. I was very attached to the kind of effective quality of these paintings, and what and what really. Um, propelled Rembrandt to to undertake this project and to learn more about it. But it really was that moment in the vaults of seeing this painting in storage um, unjustly. So it may have been a little Jesus moment myself of seeing this poor, dejected, humble picture um, unjustly treated. Um, but just to follow the, the innovation and this, this sense of this journey, because it is a very Protestant way of thinking of testing tradition against what you can see with your own eyes and then coming up with your own truth and, and your own freedom of interpretation. And these things you know, held great appeal to me. That said, these things show up on mass cards, these paintings show up on mass cards and have been very much accepted in, in a great many of traditions. So, I mean, it is a, uh, like Rembrandt does not have one fixed theology and he doesn't, he's not really a member of one group or church. Um, uh, and his friends in all groups, Socinians, Mennonites, Jewish, Catholics, um, free thinkers, you know, it, he, he's very, very uh, broad in his own attachments. So there is that sense of, of freedom there that is, um, I think, so marvelous to watch. But it, you, I mean, it takes a little bit of work because you have to step back. That's the part I didn't realize. I sort of knew it from, you know, sharing Gerstel's course in Byzantine art that how you, you're supposed to paint a picture properly, it's, there are a lot of rules. 
Um, but to watch it develop, you know, watch this this model head north, and to see Rembrandt then transform it, I think was a really magic moment. It really, I was so quite surprised to see that this, you know, seemed to me at least to be the first time that a hu really distinctly human Jesus had been put into the tradition of Western art. Oh, Devin. It's not as much a question as I just want to thank you for seeing so much in these little sketches and bringing that beautiful show together. Well, thank you. And you have a chance to, to see us. it. Thank you very much. Did you have a question? Yeah, I Loud enough, so. Okay. Um, does the uh, Hebrew uh, appearance of Jesus uh, continue anywhere else in Protestant countries during the 17th century, for example, Germany or uh, anywhere in the north other than uh, the examples you've been able to discover in uh, Amsterdam and the Netherlands in general? Yeah, I have not found it anywhere else. Um, Although the the, so the 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 Nordic Jesus is a real 19th century thing, it, um, ironically probably has a lot to do with Darwin. But um, the uh, but you know the, the traditional models developed by Rubens, developed in uh, in Italian painting, uh, are very very rigid and, and and are faithfully followed. There is a great conservatism about the, the face of Jesus in those traditions. But the specific Rembrandt model. Um, has little, you have little flashes of it in mass and in and, mire, and but really, I have not seen it anywhere else. It seems to be quite deliberately rejected, um, and that's odd because the paintings are in great collections. These little Jesus sketches end up in famous French, almost all of them in famous French collections in the 18th century, and that's one reason that Sadelmeyer ends up selling almost all of them in Paris. Um, uh, is because they're already in France. They're all, most of them are already in Paris, so that they were they were greatly admired with so many other Rembrandt works uh, in the 18th and 19th century. So it's not like the paintings themselves were treated badly. They survived. They were restored. Um, it's the innovation that was not really talked about or or promoted in these works. And it's not even in Rembrandtesque works that you find that this model back, and that's what's most alarming. I just wanted to raise an example that I saw very recently at a Max Lieberman exhibition in Hamburg. Um, oh, that's great! That was really where, interesting. Where um, you know you have this Jesus in the temple, portrayed as a little Jewish boy, yeah. and it was so controversial at the time in the late 19th century that it was overpainted. Yeah. to become a nice little Christian boy. Exactly, and that um, was really a very public thing. It was yeah. very scary, but very distinct. Um, and then, of course, the example we had here with William Holman Hunt, yes. with this little um, Etonian blonde blue-eyed character um, being the Jesus in the temple, um, teaching these sort of blind um, Jewish people who are listening to him. He did choose an so. Italian model late, later on. That was, I guess, as close as he thought he could get. What amazed me most was James Tissot. He has this great phase later in his life where he lives in Palestine and does these graphically realistic scenes of the life of Christ. 
but he just can't do it. The Jesus is always the traditional Jesus. Like, what a strange specter showing up. And in all these paintings with their just extremely detailed and, and correct, uh, you know, staffage and, and biblical characters um, drawn from people in Palestine. That part's really great. So even, you know, Tiso, really, it was the farthest thing from his mind to, to make an accurate Jesus in the 19th century, even though he was right there. So. Now, it's, uh, the Lieberman story is really, and quite jarring, because you realize, boy, that was when, at the same, that was the time at which this, the awareness of what Rembrandt had done was really starting to, to, to uh, re be revived again. I wondered if you could comment on uh, two speculations that I was having as I was re reading about this. Um, the relationship with the philosemitic community and mm -hmm. perhaps yeah. was Rembrandt wanting to honor that dialogue or what about his relationship with his patron um, uh, Ben Israel? Oh, Ben, ben, ben Israel. Yeah. Well, that is a very good thing. I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't have time. <laughs> it, it, that is one of the most fascinating aspects of this whole thing because it, 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 it's, the, it's not quite coincidental but almost at exactly the same time that Rembrandt is doing the little Jesus sketches and a little bit later, so maybe some of the tail end of this. Uh, you have Manasseh ben Israel, this, this rabbi who's the, from the most influential rabbi in Amsterdam at the time. He's the one who petitions Cromwell to, uh, to allow Jews to settle in Great Britain. Very influential figure, and Spinoza's teacher. And he hires Rembrandt to do four illustrations for a book called the Piedro Gloriosa based on the prophecies of Daniel, showing this, the glorious stone. Um, and Rembrandt produces these little engravings. Uh, they weren't used because the, one of them showed God the Father. So they were copied in a, in a, by another artist and inserted into the little book. But nevertheless, he was commissioned to do this, this messi kind of messianic tract, and messianism is a very big part of Manasseh's Ben Israel's theology. At exactly this moment, Rembrandt is, uh, sorry, Manasseh ben Israel is having this dialogue with these two Protestant theologians about messianism, and they find common ground. And that is this moment of the mid, like the mid-century, uh, around 1650-65, uh, when Rembrandt is working for Manasseh ben Israel, and then you have this kind of the, the great, the high point of this exchange and this dialogue. It's treated with a lot of skepticism now, but I thought, like people, the bare facts are pretty amazing. Um, and of course, it doesn't necessarily keep. I mean, it's in later decades that you see anti-Semitism really creeping back, a la Jan Voss. But nevertheless, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that what was going on at mid-century wasn't really an extraordinary moment. I mean, this is a city, probably because of the Protestant Reformation, that had this amazing tolerance and elasticity of what was allowed. Um, and you have synagogues being set up where this, it couldn't otherwise be done in Europe. Um, and and this, this kind of freedom, this interaction, this dialogue. Was it perfect? No. Was it extraordinary for the time? Absolutely. So, thank you for bringing that up. We've got time for one last question. Just a, just a quick one. You mentioned that you don't know who the model is. Yeah. Was it typical for Rembrandt and his workshop to have an archive of the names of models that they used? No. So that, that's no, it's purely by happenstance that we ever find out who, who poses for anything. Those tronies are really meant to be anonymous. They're really meant to be models that are multi-purpose. Uh, 
So you don't want them to be too specific. Um, so there is this, this slight shift from those black drawings, drawings to the little sketches. Um, uh, it, we find out in odd ways that people, you know, when um, it's actually Constantine Huygens talks about Jan Lievens doing a picture of an oriental potentate with a Dutchman's head and then uh, another diarist, I work on Jan Lievens, uh, that was my entry into Rembrandt, um, and uh, talks about Jan Lievens doing uh, the caretaker of the uh, old folks home holding the sc a skull, a painting that we actually found a few years ago in a private collection. Um, but he mentions who he is. That's really extraordinary because they're meant to be anonymous. They're, it would be very much against the grain that for the models that you would know who it was. There's also this great fad at the same time of people dressing up and acting like Jupiter and Ganymede and all kinds of you know, lots of pastoral poetry being acted out in painting, these portraits historiae. This is not that. This is, uh, and, and I, that would be really extraordinary if you had like an identifiable person posing for Jesus uh, at the time. But it is, it is unique. Paid models are not generally known uh, by name in, the, in this time period in Rembrandt's account books or uh, mentioned in any other way. Lloyd, at this point, I want to thank you so much for giving us a lovely, fresh view of Rembrandt. And, and thank you for so much for your passion, and never mind the passion of Christ, the passion of Lloyd, I think, is extraordinary. And I look forward to seeing where he's going to lead us with the, you know, the European collection, what you're going to do with it. Before we all go, I just want to tell you next week for something completely different. We have, I have a series, Art and Philosophy. We belong together so well. So next week, we'll have David Siavata who's going to give us an existentialist reading of Baudois. And then the week after, on Friday, February 24th, we, I have a series of medical practitioners in conversation with artists. And this one will be on the plague. So we have an epidemiologist talking about plagues and you know, what that means for society and how society reacts. And um, Robert Hull, the, the First Nations artist, is going to talk about various things, including his experience with residential schools and also the use of smallpox as germ warfare. So that's going to be an interesting conversation. So thank you, Lloyd, again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.